This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We're doing this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. Today we're going to be talking about the Warlord number 7 through 10, John Sable number 7, Green Arrow number 3 and 4, and we'll be covering Star Slayer number one. We're only covering one issue of John Sable this time, since we covered the entire four-issue origin story last time. As we've mentioned in the past, we'll vary the number of issues based on how story arcs fall, and this time we have a standalone John Sable story, while next time we'll cover another multi-issue story. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrail.com, which is his official site, where he posts upcoming convention appearances, as well as occasional news updates. If you ever get a chance to see Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you're unable to see Mike Grell at a convention but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Kress of Catskill Comics, who is the official representative for Mike Grell for commissions. Scott's always friendly and helpful. If you are on Facebook, check out the Mike Grell page expertly run by Gus Ceballos. There are a few other podcasts we recommend for Mike Grell fans as well. Professor Allen at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network is a Mike Grell fan and occasionally covers Mike Grell comics on his many podcasts. Jeff Messer at the Geek Brain Podcast is another fan and has done a couple of interviews with Mike Grell on his show. Ryan Daly's Flowers and Fishnets podcast is undergoing a change to Powers and Fishnets and will focus on both Black Canary and Zatanna going forward. And the Emerald Archer podcast from Ed and Nick Moore continues to cover Green Arrow comics both past and present. Links to all of these resources are in the show notes for those of you who want to check them out. Plus, we'd like to hear from you, so please drop us a note to let us know what you think of the show. Give us your thoughts on the issues we cover, including the stories and art. We'll provide our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoyed this show, please consider checking out our other podcast, which is Trekker Talk. It's devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. Star Slayer, The Director's Cut, number one, June 1995. Creator, writer, and layouts, Mike Grell. Finishes, S. Clark Hallbaker. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with a ship traveling through the depths of space. It's the Jolly Roger, and it has a skull and crossbones painted on the side, and an enormous red cell unfurled above it. Inside, a man is walking down a set of stairs. His name is Torin, and a scar runs down the left side of his face, and a gold eye patch covers that injured eye. A small metal robot rests upon his left shoulder. He calls out, Where are we, Tamara? to the woman with long black hair who is standing at the helm of the ship. They're stopping at the Tau-7 spaceport for supplies. She calls the small robot Sam and tells it to prepare the Bow Spirit shuttle for flight. After docking, they fly the Bow Spirit across to the station. Inside, they ask to talk to the director. He's expecting them, having recognized their ship, because there's no other vessel like the Jolly Roger. He expects the two of them to be in trouble and to cause trouble. He offers to buy the ship for 70,000 credits and give them new identity cards, but they aren't selling. Instead, Tamara offers to pay 25,000 in gold for supplies. The director laughs saying that much gold didn't survive. But Tamara drops a bag filled with gold on his desk. While waiting for their ship to be resupplied, the two go to the bar. The ladies seem particularly interested in Torin, but he shows no interest in return. A man approaches Torin at the bar, telling him he's from Earth as well, and attempting a conversation. But Sam seems to know what is going to happen, and jumps off Torin's shoulder just as he turns and hits the man. 
Moments later, everyone, humans and aliens alike, rush in to join the huge fight. Sam goes to Tamara and tells her Torin needs her help, but she isn't interested until he starts quoting scenes from Casablanca, and so she leaps into the fray. The two are holding their own when armed guards intervene, stopping the fight and taking them back to the director. He's still willing to give them their supplies, but he wants them back on their ship now and off of his station. Back on the Jolly Roger, Tamara and Sam watch Torin as he works at a computer console. He's almost done with the transporter, says Sam. Not bad for a guy who wouldn't know a microchip from a cow chip. At the computer console, Torin is staring at an image of a woman and says, Soon, Gwyneth, I'm coming home. There's lots of mystery in this first issue. The characters and situations are intriguing, and Sam is funny. I like his Casablanca quotes. But nothing is made clear in the beginning. But don't worry, you'll appreciate how the story unfolds over these next few issues. Star Slayer began in 1982 as a six-issue miniseries written and illustrated by Mike Grell. It continued as a regular series with issue number 7 in 1983 and ended with issue 34 in 1985, but Mike Grell had minimal involvement after the initial miniseries. In 1995, Mike Grell released an expanded director's cut of the original six-issue miniseries with additional pages and art and new colors. This director's cut expanded the original six-issue series into eight issues, and that's the version we're going to talk about. If you look at the original issue number one, you won't see any of the story we just covered. Instead, that story is issue number two in the director's cut. The cover is a great start to the series, featuring an image of Torin and Tamara both with swords in hand and the Jolly Roger hovering behind them. The interior art features great designs of ships, alien life forms, swords, lasers, and flowing capes. It really looks like a classic swashbuckler set in space. The book opens with a beautiful space scene that has an amazing two-page spread of the pirate-themed spaceship making a spectacular entrance. I enjoyed many of the creative page layouts. Some sequences don't have defined panels, so at times figures and panels overlap. It's a nice technique, and it's easy to follow the flow of the story. A favorite section of mine is the two-page spread just before the last page. The bottom two-thirds of the page have the panels tilted at angles that create a nice perspective, and reveal a gorgeous spaceport scene behind. And there are at least five different two-page spreads in this book. They're a great way to showcase important elements of the story and to give the story a feeling of vast expanse. Yeah, I'm really excited for 2016. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire & Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show. And I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network. And then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, The Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, oh, hot move. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben, voyons don't. You have what? got uh, technology. Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page, and folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? 
Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? John Sable Freelance Number 7, The Target, December 1983. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Peter Iro. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with B.B. Flynn being interviewed about his children's books on The Tonight Show with host Johnny Carson. Following a commercial break, Carson introduces his next guest, stuntman Jason Sonny Pratt, who worked in movies during the Great Adventure era. Sonny swings onto the set with a rope, brandishing a sword, and dressed as a swashbuckler. Carson proceeds to interview Sonny while the two duel on set. Pratt tells him the Hollywood actors who could fence the best were Basil Rathbone and Oliver Reed. He also tells Carson about a man he trained for the 1972 Olympics as B.B. Flynn squirms in his seat. Backstage after the show, B.B. Flynn finds Sonny Pratt waiting for him. Shaking his hand, he thanks him for not revealing his identity as John Sable, to which Sonny replies, What's with the Harpo Marks hairdo? As the two wrap up their conversation, Sable invites Sonny to visit him in New York sometime. Next, we're at a police safe house. Andrea Stasek is set to be the key witness at the trial of a mobster named Joe Baylor on Monday morning, but only if she can live through the weekend. Moments later, we see a woman being escorted to a waiting car when a manhole cover raises and a rocket launcher fires, destroying the car and the occupants. Andrea Stasek is still inside the safe house, staring out at the burning car. The police with her radio in and report the explosion and explain it was a decoy who was in the car. When they get off the phone, they turn to see Andrea Stasek is gone. Sable returns home to find a message on his answering machine. It's Andrea Stasek asking for help. She isn't saying where she is, but says if he's as good as she's heard, he will find her. Sable calls and wakes his friend Howard, who is a police file clerk, to get any inside information about Stasek. Andrea Hurley dreamed of a career on Broadway, but ended up a stripper who later married mobster Carl Stasek. She's the only eyewitness who saw mobster Joe Baylor kill Carl Stasek. Sable shows up at the strip club where Andrea once worked and finds her hiding in plain sight, wearing a blonde wig to hide her black hair. But he isn't the only one who's found her, and moments later, gunshots are fired. But she and Sable manage to escape through the alley. The two hide out on the top floor of an incomplete building that Stasek and Baylor were constructing together before Stasek found out Baylor was double-crossing him. When Stasek confronted him, Baylor killed him. Sable sets up several barricades as the two wait things out the slowly passing weekend. There are only ten hours remaining when Sable sees ten men arrive. Sable ambushes one group on the stairs and dispatches another group that have ridden up in a construction crane's shovel outside of the building. Then, wondering why he hasn't seen the last three men, he suddenly realizes what that group has been up to. Outside, Baylor flips a switch, and the building implodes, crashing to the ground. Baylor happily drives away. Later, Captain Winters is on site with several police officers, wondering why someone blew up in an unfinished building when he hears a familiar voice calling from the sky. He looks up to see Sable and Andrea Stasek safely hiding in the construction crane shovel. Days later after the trial, Sable is having a romantic evening at home with Andrea when suddenly a man dressed as Zorro crashes into the house. He calls out, Fear not, senorita, the curse of Capistrano is here. He tosses a sword to Sable and attacks, and when he leans in close, Sable recognizes it's Sonny Pratt, and moments later Sable is easily disarmed as Sonny makes three quick slashes. Sonny kisses Andrea before making his escape. She turns to Sable and sees the letter Z cut into his shirt, and she asks, Who was that masked man? This was a good story, and I really enjoyed the references to Basil Rathbone and Oliver Reed being actors who were good with swords. While Basil Rathbone is well known for playing Sherlock Holmes in more than a dozen films and on the radio for several years, he also played Sir Guy of Gisborne in the classic 1938 Robin Hood film with Errol Flynn. Oliver Reed had a lengthy film career and brandished a sword well as Athos in both The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. There's a great story about the cover that Mike Grell told us in the past. The cover is in black and white with the exception of a red target. The publisher didn't want a black and white cover on the shelf, so Mike Grell had to fight to keep the cover the way he wanted. In the end, he was vindicated when retailers voted it the best cover of the month. 
not surprising because it is quite striking. I like the title page. The title of the story is The Target, and the letters are designed to look like a target. And above that, the bad guys have just hit their target, causing the car to explode in flames. While Johnny Carson is never named, the likeness is perfect, making him easily recognizable. Sonny's appearances are very memorable. Dressed as a swashbuckler, it looks like he swung right out of one of our favorite movies, and it's a delight to see him dressed as Zorro. As usual, the art and writing for the entire book is very strong. There are clever panel layouts, and the action scenes are exciting, and the story is suspenseful and entertaining. Out of the night, when the moon is bright, comes a horseman known as Zorro. This bold renegade carves a sea with his blade, a sea that stands for Zorro. Green Arrow number three, The Champions Part One, April 1988. Writer Mike Grell, artists Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano with Frank McLaughlin. Colors Julia Laquament, letters John Costanza, editor Mike Gold. It's Christmas in Seattle and Dinah Lance is riding a bus when a gang of young men boarded a stop and pull out knives, ordering the driver to keep the bus moving and demanding the riders hand over their valuables. While the gang is distracted, Dinah quickly pivots out of a window and up onto the roof of the bus. When the bus stops, she leaps from above and moments later has disarmed the bandits. Meanwhile, in orbit, two astronauts are working outside a space station when it explodes, killing the astronauts and sending debris raining down to Earth, including a fiery ball that streaks across the Seattle skyline. Oliver is shocked by Dinah's black eye and bloody nose when she returns home, but she is excited to share her story and excited about other possibilities as well as the lights go out. Later that night, Green Arrow is on patrol when he confronts two men who appear to be attacking a third man in an alley. However, while Oliver is taking care of the two attackers, the third man hits him from behind, knocking him unconscious. He wakes on a couch with a well-dressed man watching over him. The man doesn't give his real name, but tells Green Arrow to call him Mr. Joshua. The man tells him about the explosion in space. It was a secret mission, and though it wasn't the intended purpose, the astronauts developed a biological weapon in the vacuum of space. The virus can be designed to target specific plants or even specific races, and it could be devastating if it fell into the wrong hands. A tracking device showed the canister containing the biological weapon has landed on San Juan Island off the coast of Washington State. There's a group of students there working at an archaeological dig, and the canister needs to be retrieved before the students find it. The Chinese are also after the canister and have a ship off the coast. Mr. Joshua wants Green Arrow to go in alone to retrieve the canister. It's radioactive, and he gives Oliver a Geiger counter. Mr. Joshua knows the Chinese are also sending in a man named Eddie Fires. He's the best in the business and was his first choice, but the Chinese hired him first. Green Arrow asks why they don't just send in the troops. But when Mr. Joshua replies, we can't do that without serious trouble from your government, Green Arrow then realizes it isn't the American government asking for his help, it's the Russian government. Green Arrow is furious. He wants to refuse the job, but he can't imagine what might happen if the canister ends up in the wrong hands. So he catches the next ferry to San Juan Island. But Fires is already on the island and watching Oliver through a rifle scope when the ferry arrives. This is a perfect story for its time. Cold War espionage in the 1980s. The look on Oliver's face when he realizes he's being asked to work for the Russians is priceless. The issue features a cover by Mike Grell of Green Arrow against a red background, with his bow and arrow in hand, while a giant sickle slashes toward him, ready to hook him and pull him forward. The sickle and red background suggest the flag of the Soviet Union, and the way he got hooked into going on this mission. It's a nice touch. The interior art by Hannigan and Giordano is solid, and the acrobatic maneuvers of Dinah in the early part of the story are great. The action plays out over three full pages, with an emphasis on visual storytelling and very few words. It was great to see Dinah back in action, and she makes quick work of the bandits and is back to herself following the events of the Longbow Hunters miniseries. My favorite part of the issue might be when Oliver is practicing his archery at home while singing the theme song to the classic British Robin Hood TV series from the 1950s. That show is a great telling of the legend and a favorite of ours, and we have it on DVD. It's nice to know that Mike Grell must be a fan of the show as well. It was also a lot of fun to see Oliver use a toaster to toss up a target. 
He had adjusted the springs to give it extra spring action. I was halfway expecting to see a piece of toast or a waffle fly into the air, but it was a light cardboard disc instead. The space scenes and explosion powerfully filled up a two-page spread, and there is an amazing splash page of Green Arrow at night on the top of a building looking over the city. With just a little cropping, it would make a great cover. The next-to-last page has terrific scenes of the island, the beauty of nature and the clouds, trees, and birds. I really like the totem poles, too. Green Arrow number 4, The Champions, Part 2, May 1988. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Ed Hannigan, inks Dick Giordano with Frank McLaughlin. Colors Julia Lacrament, letters John Costanza, editor Mike Gold. Oliver disembarks from the ferry. Eddie Fires meets him on the dock. Their conversation starts casually, with references to the oncoming snowstorm that will make their walk in the woods difficult. Then Fires tells Oliver he's surprised to see he's working for the Russians. Fires says he was expecting Hayden or Maccabee. Oliver counters, asking what Fires is doing working for the Chinese because he thought he was with the CIA, referring back to the two men's first meeting on Mount Rainier during the Longbow Hunters miniseries. Fires counters, explaining he's a professional. He's hired to do a job. It was the CIA then, it's the Chinese now. As the two enter the woods, Fires says, with the two of us looking, we'll find it faster. Then we'll see who can keep it. As Fires walks away, Oliver dons his green arrow hood, but instead of going off a separate direction, Oliver decides to follow Fires. That turns out to be a mistake, as Fires expected it and set a trap that Oliver inadvertently triggers. An arrow is released by the trap and strikes Oliver in the right leg. Fires calls out from a hiding place, saying, That's just a little something to slow you down. As Green Arrow bandages his bleeding leg, the snow from the oncoming storm begins to fall. The storm has become intense and the snow quite heavy when Green Arrow comes upon a cabin with smoke coming from the chimney. He stumbles to the door and is greeted by a young woman. Her name is Kira, and she's working at the archaeological site. The others went to Seattle for the weekend to get away from the storm. Lucky for Oliver, she has two years of pre-med training and confidently stitches up the wound in his leg. She stayed behind to clean some of the artifacts, using small amounts of acid from a container to remove excessive debris. They found artifacts from at least two different Native American tribes, and she's personally looking for an ancestral link. Kira is shocked to see that the Green Arrow is already preparing to step back outside. What's so important to risk his life in the storm, and how does he expect to find it in the heavy snow, she asks. He pulls out the Geiger counter and says, with this, and as he turns on the power, it immediately begins to beep. He turns toward the shelves and sees a modern container sitting among the artifacts. He knows he needs to get away with the container before Fires tracks it, but it's already too late and bullets break the windows. Green Arrow and Kira duck behind the counters and Oliver turns out the lights. He asks Kira if she has anything flammable and she points him toward a container of kerosene. He fills a small glass jar and fashions a homemade Molotov cocktail and tells Kira that once he lights it, he needs her to throw it into the air as high as she can and then close her eyes. When the glass jar reaches its apex, Oliver shoots it with an arrow, creating an explosion that temporarily blinds fires. It seems to go as planned as the pair run into the woods, but Fires recovers faster than expected and steps from behind a tree with his gun aimed. Oliver pulls Kira behind him to shield her from the bullet, but it isn't them that Fires is shooting at. Behind them, the body of Hayden drops to the ground. He was one of the other men that Fires mentioned earlier, so it seems the Chinese didn't have full confidence in Fires after all and sent in a backup. Fires tosses a pair of handcuffs to Green Arrow and tells him to restrain the girl until the two of them have completed their business. Fires puts down his gun, and he and Oliver launch at each other, and while it seems Green Arrow is getting the better of him, Fires then kicks Oliver's leg where the arrow hit him earlier. Green Arrow crumples in pain and falls backwards to the ground. Fires goes back to Kira, where the container was left, but as he picks it up he finds Maccabee standing over him with a gun. Maccabee puts a tracking device on the container and walks to a ledge and throws it toward a waiting submarine. But from a distance, Green Arrow presses the button on a trigger, exploding the container in the air. As Maccabee looks on in disbelief, a green-gloved hand reaches from below, pulling Maccabee over the ledge. Fires turns toward Oliver and says, See you around, before turning and walking away. But Oliver wasn't taking any chances. 
The cylinder at the core of the container was no longer inside. Back at the cabin, Green Arrow drops it into the container of acid, ensuring neither side can use it. The issue includes a nice cover by Mike Grell that features a montage of several scenes from the story surrounding a center image of Green Arrow with an arrow pulled back ready to fire. The title page is a great view of Green Arrow with his bow and arrows and the dark green forest behind him. It was nice seeing him in action out in the forest for a change instead of the city. The series features so much variety. There's not a lot of dialogue in this issue. Significant portions are told through the art, and that is handled very well. The pacing is good and the story is never confusing, with just enough dialogue at the right times. The interior features some great snow scenes by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. The scenes are at night and filled with mystery and danger. It makes you feel cold while you're reading. You can just hear the wind howl as you see the snow whip across the panels. Very well done. There is also a great page near the end where Maccabee is heading toward the submarine. It is still dark and snowing, with most everything in silhouette, until the canister blows up dramatically, lighting the night sky in the lower part of the page. Green Arrow isn't at his best initially. He seems to always be one step behind everyone else, but thankfully, he perseveres in the end, saving the day, as all good heroes do. The coincidence of how these issues fell into sequence was a delight. Robin Hood and Zorro are two of my all-time favorite characters, and we got Green Arrow singing the theme song to the great Robin Hood TV series, starring the appropriately named Richard Green as Robin Hood. And seeing Zorro show up in John Sable was great. I'm sure Mike Grell had as much fun with these issues as I had reading them. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Number 7, The Iron Devil, July 1977, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Our story opens with Travis Morgan and Mariah Romanova still searching for Tara, but all Morgan knows is that Shambhala lies beyond the Great Fire Mountain in the forest of Evandar. Along the way, they stop at the Thieves' Market in the city of Kiro, where Morgan knows there is a talented sword maker. He convinces Mariah to hand over her rifle to be melted down for the metal. He points out she is nearly out of bullets and tells her a sword is more appropriate and he'll start training her immediately. Mariah tells him that won't be necessary as she was the Russian national saber champion six years in a row and she laughs at Morgan's surprise reaction. Travis then convinces her she'll need to look for new clothes. Her outer world clothes are attracting attention and aren't appropriate for the hot and humid weather in Skataris. After some shopping and time at a public bath, Mariah returns in a barely there barbarian outfit. She has also added yellow makeup around her eyes and cheeks, creating a memorable image. Later, the two pick up their new swords, and Mariah learns hers has a stiletto hidden in the hilt. Upon leaving the shop, the two are ambushed by armed guards and awaken in a palace, where they are told the king has sent for them. They walk into the throne room and are greeted by Morgan's good friend, Machiste, who reminds Morgan he told him he was notorious around here. During a pleasant evening of conversation, Morgan tells Machiste of his time back on the surface and how he lost track of Tara. Later, Mariah asks about the magnificently made axe that Machiste has held in his hand all evening. Machiste tells the story of finding a hidden cave while escaping from a tribe of beastmen. In the cave, he found a skeleton with a severed hand holding that very axe. When he picked it up, he felt a warmth sweep over him and has found the axe to be a powerful weapon in battle. When Morgan asks to see it, he replies, I've grown rather attached to it. You see, I can't seem to put it down. As Morgan probes more, he begins to see the bloodlust in Machiste's eyes, and when a serving maid inadvertently spills some wine, Morgan is shocked to see Machiste raise his weapon to kill the woman. Morgan intervenes, and he and Machiste engage in a heated battle, with Machiste clearly in command. However, one of the times he swings the axe, it gets caught in a stone wall. Morgan takes that moment to swing his sword, cutting off Machiste's hand. As Mariah cauterizes the wound with the fire from a torch, Machiste thanks Morgan for releasing him from the power of the axe. In the final scene, we see Machiste has sent one of his guards to throw the axe into a volcano, but instead he grasps the axe and turns away from the volcano with a smile on his face. The reunion with Machiste is welcome, but it certainly doesn't go as expected. It's an intriguing story, but a little harsh that Morgan is forced to cut the hand off of one of his best friends. The cover by Mike Grell features a scene of the heated battle between Morgan and Machiste. 
though on the cover we see that Mariah is chained to a wall. That's not the case in the book, where she dispatches guards sent by Machiste and helps in the fight. The story is well-paced and full of great action, and the art is terrific, especially the title splash page. Mike Grell really knows how to draw great fight scenes, complete with detailed armor and ferocious expressions. Later, during a montage of the fight between Morgan and Machiste, I like that there is an image of a grimacing mist-like face in the background, representing the evil spirit of the axe. The ending, when the guard walks away from the volcano with the axe in hand, reminds me of the end of The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo chooses to keep the ring instead of throwing it in Mount Doom. Unfortunately, there's no golem in this story to accidentally destroy the ring, uh, I mean axe. It will be interesting to see if that axe turns up in a future story, because I honestly don't remember. The Warlord number 8, The City and the Sky, September 1977, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Our story opens in Machiste's palace in the city of Kiro. Machiste has had his armorer fashion a mace to replace his lost right hand. As Travis Morgan comments that it could give someone an awful headache, a guard calls out in distress as a swarm of pterodactyls swoop down into the city. Morgan, Machiste, and Mariah all fight well, but in the end one of the pterodactyls grasps Mariah and flies into the sky. Morgan and Machiste quickly catch rides with another of the pterodactyls in the hopes that they will all return to the same roost so they can rescue Mariah. In the distance, Morgan and Machiste see the pterodactyls are all flying toward a city that is floating in the sky. Morgan and Machiste drop from their pterodactyl onto a ledge of the city and then are immediately attacked by two mechanical robots, but our heroes quickly dispose of them. The two begin to explore the city and notice it is beginning to crumble from age. Finally, in the distance, they hear voices and are surprised to see Mariah relaxing and enjoying a glass of wine with an older man. The man's name is Trag, and he welcomes them to the city of Skyra. It was built by the Atlanteans, who first settled in Skataris before the time of the Great War. The city is an airborne defense, and Trag is not a man, but rather a human-mechanical hybrid cyborg who controls all of the city merely by thought. To illustrate his point, he fires a laser at the ground below, killing a T-Rex in mid-stride. He tells them there are no other residents on Skyra, the humans all left after the Great War. He apologizes for his pet pterodactyls that captured Mariah. He uses them to bring him meat and other food from the surface, and tells them that this is the first time they've brought a human. He will need to retrain them. Trag gives them a tour of the city, but as Morgan and Machise step into a dark and cold room, they don't see Trag grab Mariah's arm and put his hand over her mouth just as giant doors close and trap them inside. As their eyes adjust to the dark, they realize Trag was lying about Mariah being the first human his pterodactyls have captured. They have been locked in Trag's freezer and it is filled with frozen human bodies. Just then a machine begins spraying the two men with freezing water and ice begins to quickly form around them. Machiste swings his mace hand freeing Morgan's trapped gun, and Morgan aims the gun toward the machine, destroying it. As the two leave the freezer, Morgan sees some giant curtains covering several windows and tells Machiste there's something they need to take care of. Meanwhile, Trag is telling Mariah that food isn't the only thing the human parts of his body needs. He plans to make her his bride. Just then, Morgan and Machiste break into the room, but they've forgotten that Trag controls the city with his mind, and they find themselves immediately trapped behind a force field that sends Morgan's gun flying to the floor. As Trag taunts the two men, Mariah jumps toward the gun. Trag turns toward her, but she spins, aims, and shoots Trag between the eyes. With Trag's death, there's nothing to control the city, which immediately begins to pitch and starts to fall from the sky. But Morgan had a plan with the stop he made earlier, and our three heroes fly from the city on handmade hang gliders, and the city of Skyra crashes to the ground. This is a fun story, and one I remember well from reading the series in the past. Plus, it's another good story that helps build the mythos of Skotaris as a once-great and modern world created by the Atlanteans that has decayed and devolved over time. The cover features Morgan and Machiste in their battle against the robots in Skyra. I always love the two-page title spreads in The Warlord, and this one is great with Morgan, Machiste, and Mariah all racing toward the swarm of descending pterodactyls. Later, there's a particularly gorgeous scene of the pterodactyls flying toward Skyra, the wings of one of the creatures swoop up to frame the city against a cloudy background. It's very stylish, and the perspective is terrific. I can feel the height. This world easily captures my imagination. 
the mix of prehistoric dinosaurs, Atlantis, a deranged cyborg, and sheer adventure make for a riveting and dangerous day in Skataris. I always enjoy spending time there, but now I think I should be sure to buy traveler's insurance any time I visit. The Warlord Number 9, Lair of the Snow Beast, November 1977. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell, colored by Liz Berube. Our story opens with Travis Morgan, Machiste, and Mariah making their way through a frozen tundra. Morgan wonders how there could be a blizzard in a tropical world where the sun always shines, and Mariah summarizes the perpetual cloud cover over the valley must block out the warmth. As the trio round a corner, they are attacked by what appears to be a giant bear, but Morgan describes it as a giant bloodthirsty wolverine. The creature slashes its claws across Morgan's back, sending him to the ground. While Mariah attacks it with her sword, the injured Morgan manages to climb upon its back and unloads several shots from his gun into its skull, killing it. Just then, a group of men arrive, riding atop three giant mammoths. Mariah and Machiste ask for their help, but they tell them it is too late to save Morgan, who lies bleeding in the snow. The giant mammoths reach down with their trunks and grasp Mariah and Machiste, lifting them into the air and walking away. Morgan pulls himself to his feet and begins following the giant mammoth tracks in the snow, but soon he collapses and falls back to the ground unconscious, where he dreams of being borne skyward by a beautiful Valkyrie with wings like a giant butterfly. He wakes to find himself in a cave with a roaring fire. He immediately notices there are no scars on his back from the earlier encounter with the creature, and he wonders who could be so skilled with medicine and yet live in such a wilderness. Then suddenly a creature walks into the cave that looks like a giant yeti. Morgan grabs his sword and attacks the creature with no effect. The yeti's arms are so long it easily swats Morgan aside and pins him to the wall, but as the snow beast stares into his eyes, its anger subsides, and it slowly lowers Morgan to the ground. Morgan then realizes with disbelief that it must have been this creature that saved him. Realizing the snow beast is intelligent, he asks if it knows where his friends are, and while it can't talk, it takes him to the mouth of the cave and points toward a city high atop a tower of rock. Morgan proceeds alone on foot and begins to scale the tower of rock. The further he climbs, the warmer it gets as he climbs above the freezing temperatures of the clouded valley. He sees Machiste and Mariah tied to a stone wall and surrounded by warriors. He drops in, swinging his sword and freeing Mariah and Machiste, but the element of surprise can't overcome being so outnumbered, and soon the warriors have them all surrounded. Just then, the snow beast drops in, grabbing Morgan and climbing up a wall. Mariah and Machiste immediately think the beast is going to kill Morgan, so Machiste grabs a spear and throws it through the creature's chest. Morgan angrily turns toward Machiste and Mariah, but suddenly a beautiful woman with giant butterfly wings appears above the snow beast, telling Morgan to rejoice because she is finally free. Her name is Tania. Long ago, she consulted the dark arts to help her people during a time of plague, but she became trapped inside the body of the snow beast until someone could see beyond the ugly exterior to the beauty beneath. Morgan was that person, and he has freed her. As Tania flies away, Morgan, Machiste, and Mariah resume their journey. Mike Grell likes to put little lessons into his stories sometimes, and here is a perfect example, a seemingly simple little adventure story with a moral at its center. I really like the way Mike Grell sort of tricked us by showing us the true image of Tania early in the story, but then making us think it was really a snow beast, only to reveal the true image again at the end. The cover features an image of Morgan fighting the snow beast. The interior snow scenes are chilling and the mammoths look amazing. I like how the wind is illustrated so harshly, letting you know that they won't be able to survive for long in that environment. Just before Morgan drops down to fight the warriors, he comments that he's going to do his best Johnny Weissmuller impression which is another reference to Mike Grell being a fan of the stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Tarzan in particular. This is also a perfect example of a story we've heard Mike Grell share before. He was always opposed to creating a map of Scotaris, insisting that creating a map would only box him in as a writer. He much preferred keeping the world open so that he could easily have his characters in a tropical setting one issue and a frozen tundra the next issue. He always found it amusing that as soon as he left the Warlord series, DC had an artist create a map of the world. The Warlord Number 10, Tower of Fear, January 1978, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, colored by Liz Berube, lettered by Ben Oda, edited by Larry Hama. Our trio of heroes are still journeying when they come across a group of cloaked men who appear to be preparing to sacrifice a young woman. 
Travis Morgan races in, dispatching the men and freeing the young woman, but she tells him he shouldn't have interfered. Her name is Ashia, and she is the chosen one. The mask of life, the symbol of her nation, has been stolen and taken to the top of the Tower of Fear. The mask was to be returned in exchange for her sacrifice. Morgan says her people should attack the tower and retrieve what is theirs. She replies that many have entered the tower, but none have returned. She leads our heroes to a clearing in the jungle where the giant ebony Tower of Fear reaches high into the sky. Morgan tells the two women to wait outside while he and Mashiste enter the tower to retrieve the mask. Mariah calls him a chauvinist and reminds him that she can take care of herself and wagers she can reach the top of the tower before them. Laughing at her, Morgan and Mashiste tell her to name the stakes. Morgan enters the tower first, followed by Mashiste, but then Morgan pushes the door closed and puts a bar across to lock Mariah outside. Morgan and Mashiste begin to climb the staircase that spirals upward along the walls of the tower. Soon they are attacked by a huge creature that looks like an octopus with one eye and a gaping mouth, and the two men find themselves wrapped in giant tentacles. Morgan uses his sword to cut free from the tentacle and then dives toward the creature, burying his sword deep in its eye, killing it. He and Mashiste are surprised to find no other obstacles as they continue their climb. At the top of the stairs, they see a solitary door, but as they approach it, a spiraling portal appears, and beasts and monsters begin to pour out of it. They fight valiantly, but there are just too many of them, so the pair look for an opportunity to run past the portal and open the door. As bright light pours from the room, the creatures retreat into the portal. Morgan and Mashiste walk into the room and find Mariah holding the mask and laughing and telling them that while they have bulging muscles, they also have microscopic brains. Neither of them paid attention to the floating disc at the base of the tower. It was obvious to her that it was a lift, and she rode it to the top of the tower without incident. The three ride the lift back to the ground and give the mask to Ashia. Having lost the bet, Mashiste is forced to shave his head and finds his crown will need to be adjusted to fit on his head. After our heroes leave, the young and beautiful Ashia goes to a cavern where she transforms into an elderly white-haired hag. The cloaked men at the beginning of the story were actually trying to kill her because of discovering she was a witch. But once our heroes intervened, she made up the story about the sacrifice to get them to retrieve the Mask of Life because she has plans for it. A corpse lays on the stone slab in the cavern, and she places the mask on the face and energy courses through the body, giving it new life. The man rises from the stone slab and removes the mask, revealing himself to be Deimos. Lots of fun things in this story, and one of the best things is seeing Mariah getting the best of both Morgan and Machiste. While it's obvious that Machiste lost the bet, I could never figure out what Morgan lost. If anyone out there knows, please write in and enlighten us. The cover features a view of Morgan and Machiste in the tentacles of the creature in the tower, there are great full-page vertical panels showing the interior of the tower that are used well to reveal the creature, and another page is filled with dynamic diagonal panels to lay out the battle and defeat of the creature. Learning that Ashia is a witch at the end of the story is a well-done surprise, and it is a great way to bring Deimos back into the series. He is a great menacing villain, and it will be interesting to see what he does next. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We sincerely appreciate every message we've received and truly believe they add immeasurably to the show. So a big thanks to everyone who took the time to write in. Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network wrote in about our show concept, saying, What a great idea for a podcast. An overview of the works of one of comics' great storytellers. You two figured out how to find just the right niche for your shows. I didn't know there was a hole in the podcasting world that a Mike Grell show was needed, until you started one. He went on to say, Sable and Warlord were books that escaped my possession during the great comic book purge of 1999 before we moved. I've been able to reacquire all of the Sable books, but some of those early Warlords have eluded my grasp. So for those in particular, I'm looking forward to hearing you recount those stories. And yes, I do remember that time in Machu Picchu when we were researching and this white-haired man burst into the tent. And those of you who listen closely to episode two will get that little in-joke. And we want to sincerely thank Professor Allen, who honored Warlord Worlds as a runner-up for Best New Podcast of 2015. Sadly, we lost to another podcast called Trekker Talk, which took the top prize. We're quite jealous of the couple who won that coveted prize. 
Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast said we had a great second episode. And Ruth Reese said she was inspired to dig out her Warlord comics. She and her brother John Baker really like that series. We hope you both are enjoying the show. Brian Mulvey said he enjoys the pacing of the show and comments that we pack a ton into 30 minutes. And he now wants to read the books again. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary listened to the first two episodes and wrote in to say that while he's most familiar with Green Arrow, he thinks the synopses are great because he can follow what's happening. Ange was also impressed by the Mike Grell sketch of Huntress that we posted, saying, obviously, Grell would have killed it on a book starring her. Speaking of commissions, Tim Wallace of Court Industries commented on an original Blue Beetle commission that we shared from Gus Ceballos' Mike Grell page, saying that it was awesome. That is his lifelong favorite character, and we encourage you to check out his blog. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog wrote to say, You two had another amazing episode. Can't wait for episode three. Joe Crawford was happy to find us on Tumblr, where he regularly posts as Flair Joe in his blog for the non-discerning reader. Joe recently read the Director's Cut edition of the Star Slayer series, calling it a great story with top-notch art. He comments that they really expand on the original version and fill out the story. Joe must be a little psychic to have known to read Star Slayer in advance of us covering it in this episode. Joe also commented that he wasn't as familiar with Maggie the Cat or Shaman's Tears as he missed Mike Grell's work at Image at the time as he was more focused on Valiant and DC in those days. Now he plans to check out both of those titles. Just to let everyone know, we plan to cover Shaman's Tears after we finish the eight issues of Star Slayer The Director's Cut. Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, let us know that he went diving in the 50-cent bins and came up with gold as he picked up several issues of Warlord. Shag's a big fan of Warlord, and we hope he enjoys following along. Karen Williams of Between the Pages let us know that she came across a Ms. Tree and John Sable crossover educational comic called Word Warriors. Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun blog joined in on the conversation to say he had just picked up that very issue along with a ton of Ms. Tree books. We're definitely intrigued, and we'll have to look that up for a future episode. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know, and we'll correct it in the next episode. And also forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just email us and let us know, and we'll be happy to correct it in the next episode as well. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary. BC Fan 101, Bill Line, Brian Mulvey, Bronze Age Babes, Charlton Hero, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics Block, Comics in Color, DC in the 80s, Dead City Kid, Diablo Frank of the Idlehead Blogspot, Dr. G Nerdologist of Pulp the Pixels, Dread, Funny Bone Drawings, Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes, Jason Pickering, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, Joao Renato Mariano, Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader, John Baker, Jubilant Jeff, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Keith G. Baker, Keith Mason, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Sized Fun, Let's Talk Shazam, Mark Sweeney, Nicholas Prom, Paul Carroll, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly, aka Count Druncula of the Fire and Water Network. Scott Cress of Catskill Comics, Shag, the Firestorm fan of the Fire and Water Network, Sean Kelmer, Son of Cthulhu, Stephen Peterson, Terry, Ed, and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Tim Wallace of Court Industries, Traditional Animation, Trap, Will Peach, and Willie Yarborough. My name is Stella, and I host Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I, along with my dear friend Donovan Morgan Grant, are going to be hosting a special Backroll to Oracle episode called The Minority Report. I'm putting the call out right now for anyone that identifies himself or herself as a minority to have a discussion centering around this question. 
are minorities portrayed properly in media? Now, Donovan Morgan Grant and I will be leading this discussion and would like your input. So whatever your nationality, ethnicity, gender identification, or sexual orientation, if you are interested in being a part of this conversation, please contact me at backroadoracle at gmail.com. This discussion will take place in early 2016. Heterosexual white males need not apply. Thank you, and I look forward to hearing from you. We would really like to hear your thoughts about the show and share your comments in a future episode. So before we go, we want to provide our contact information. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Warlord Worlds. Also, if you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help get the show noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show so you'll always know when there's a new episode. You may also enjoy our other podcast, Trekker Talk, about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. In our opinions, Mike Grell and Ron Randall are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. Sound effects are taken from the album's number one sound effects for movies, TV, and websites. Sound Effects Library, Volumes 1 and 2. Ultimate Sound Effects Collection. Space Weapons and Lasers. Archery Sound Effects. Weapons Sound Effects. Sound Effects Collection, Volume 9. Hollywood Sound Effects, Volume 4. Dinosaur sound effects, and amazing sound effects of monsters and dinosaurs. We make no money from this podcast, and no copyright infringement is intended. Oh,